This is an abbreviated section from one of the chapters of our book, I Am Gravity. Most of the time I'll be reading, but I'll have the occasional riff or even set things up a little bit differently because reading, at least to me, isn't always like talking to you. And I would much rather talk to you. And the goal isn't just to be informative, though I I hope it is. Our hope is that you see things a little differently, more deeply, and live with a little more gravity. So with that, uh, thank you for listening. This episode's title is The Competitors, and the epigraph is Who's Really Winning and Losing? From the time your alarm clock rings tomorrow morning, you will compete and compare. Depending on how much of a hurry you're in, you will race for the fastest lane or slip ahead of the next person off the subway. You will compare the idea you shared in your meeting and decide how good it was versus someone else's. You may hear what salary someone else is making and decide that you're worth more. For everyone, it's way more, of course. But it isn't just at work. You've been doing this your entire life. Born, raised, surrounded, and submerged in competition and comparison, it isn't going to stop anytime soon. Bigger house, quicker commute, higher IQ, chicer clothes, better physique, faster car, larger salary, nicer neighborhood, cuter kids, greater market share, bigger titles, bigger promotions, more exotic vacations. It just never ends. It's the current structure of society. And there's no clear case against competition on the surface, except that the people who race solely to win inevitably lose. And the fierce competitor inside you, or one you undoubtedly know, may counter that argument with some people can't handle competitive pressure. The cutthroat world of competition is the real world we're in, and they better deal with it or deal out. So if that's your belief, grip it tight. Just make sure you know the rules of the game you're playing and how the score is kept. If you do straightforward, by-the-numbers work that never changes, then board the competition ship and sail away, or speed away. However, if you do deeply creative work, or you're up against tough intellectual problems where you have to think your way out of questions that don't always come with scripted answers, then competition fails. Drive author Dan Pink lays out decades of science that features three elements of creative achievement, none of which have anything to do with competition. Autonomy, or the desire to be self-directed. Mastery, or the itch to keep working at something that's meaningful to you. And purpose, creating something transcendent or that serves a purpose beyond yourself. The less is more competition story isn't simply a nice theory that fits only in the land of Weville. A meta-analysis of 256 studies over 56 years found almost no task on which competition beats collaboration. On nearly every financial or performance measure, competition loses. Psychologist Robert Franken's and Douglas Brown's work on competitive motivation and achievement found that competitive factors tend to be ego-oriented and clash with traits like hope, optimism, and ingenuity. Creative output is 30% higher when a competitive mentality isn't at the center of what drives us. Communication improves by 50%, time to market by 35%, and people are 20% more creative. But even staring at the bottom line data, competition is still standard issue business mentality. 
PayPal co-founder and venture capitalist Peter Thiel said, War metaphors invade our everyday business language. We use headhunters to build up a sales force that will enable us to take a captive market and make a killing. But really it's competition, not business, that is like war. Allegedly necessary, supposedly valiant, but ultimately destructive. You don't inspire anyone you see as a competitor. You conspire against them. Conversation by conversation, meeting by meeting, competitive mindsets divide you from who you're meant to inspire and cement a me mentality. And for modern work, competing and comparing are not only prehistoric, they're psychologically disruptive. As part of our work, we ran an experiment with a thousand leaders using a crossword puzzle to test the psychological and social effects of comparison and competition. Before passing out the puzzles, we explained that the exercise was to measure the impact of self-talk on IQ, concentration, and performance speed. And to add pressure, we pretended to accidentally flash a statistical finish time to IQ rating scale to exaggerate the IQ part. The scale was a setup to hype the expectations and was completely bogus. Then we explained this was a team versus team competition, but the team members could not share information or compare answers during the test, and everyone had three minutes to complete the puzzle. We added that everyone should easily finish before the time expired and made it socially competitive by adding a bag of Snickers bars as the reward for the best combined team score. And I know candy sounds straight out of grade school, and it was. But public recognition is real-world sugar, and this was a cheap way of duplicating the reward. And we added extra anxiety and social pressure by instructing everyone to stand when they were finished as we read their time out loud, they, and they were to stay standing until time expired. And so to triple down on the pressure, we announced that at the end, everyone will write their name and time on the crossword puzzle and hand in their puzzle for peer scoring. Having a coworker score the puzzle added the threat that their finish time and IQ score would expose them. The fastest time posted was just under 60 seconds, which is not surprising given the clues. An animal that says meow, furniture people sleep on, a round object used in many sports, a building in which you live. Under 60 is likely where you would come in too. But now imagine that you're sitting as the first few people stand. Half the room looks up to see who it is, surveys the rest of the room to gauge where they are by comparison, and then push on with increased intensity. Every announced time ups the pressure, reminding the unfinished puzzle takers they're likely to be labeled as a low IQ sitter if they don't hurry. As time winds down, some quit. The standing finishers wait on the sitters to finish, hoping for a little sugar. And after three minutes expire, we ask everyone to sit. Before turning in the puzzles for scoring, they answered three questions in writing. Question one, how do you feel about your performance? Finishers felt everything from mild apathy to actual pride for finishing ahead of everyone else. The sitter's answers ranged from stupid, anxious, and unable to focus to frustrated that people around them were smarter. Question two, how do you think the finishers feel about the sitters who didn't finish? 
The finishers felt sorry for the low IQ sitters and the slackers. They felt sad. They wanted to help. They thought, step it up. This isn't that hard. They're not as smart as me. Not entirely empathetic to their situation, but enough hmm, for a little pity. And then question three, how do you think the sitters who didn't finish feel about those who did finish? Lucky, smart, they tricked the system, or they, or they cheated. 70% of the sitters refused to credit the finishers for being good at puzzles or simply smarter. What no one knew during the competition was that the puzzles had identical answers, but different hints at varying levels of difficulty. For example, one answer was hamburger. Easiest hint for a hamburger was a popular fast food item in the United States that you eat with fries. The hardest hint for the same answer was a resident of a port city in Germany, which was Hamburger. Either way, Hamburger, Hamburger was the answer, but the intellectual challenge of that was miles apart. About one person at each table received the impossible puzzle, which guaranteed that at least one person on each team was going to sit, surrounded by standers, and watch the three-minute IQ timer expire. After revealing the truth about the experiment, we asked how it felt to compete. Distracted, pressured, and anxious. The sitters felt worse about themselves than they should have, and most of the finishers felt an artificial boost of superiority. Part of what streamed across everyone's mind during the competition was the fear of being branded by everyone else as a sitter or a late finisher. And we conducted these competitions at high-tech and aerospace companies, so the audiences were mostly engineers and literally rocket scientists, which is not an ideal place for a low IQ reputation. In fact, one experiment was with a group of engineers in Kansas City, Missouri, and the lead engineer had just moved from London to take a director-level position one week before we did this puzzle experiment. And by fate, he got the only impossible puzzle in the room. So he was the only one sitting at the end. And he confessed that at the two-minute mark, he was thinking of ways to get his old job back in London. He feared losing the respect of his fellow engineers once the score revealed his supposed low IQ. A manager in San Diego, California, stood and sat twice during the three minutes, even though she wasn't finished. The intense pressure for her team to win conflicted with her honesty. She didn't want to be the reason her team lost. We gently reminded her that this was just an experiment and the payoff was only a candy bar, at least on the surface. But everyone in the room knew that at work, there is no such thing as experiments. Something very real is at stake during the crossword puzzle competition. Respect and reputation. This wasn't a random group of strangers who would take part and then exit with no future together. The standers and sitters were co-workers, and when asked to reveal what they were thinking between the time we gathered the puzzles for scoring and the expected fake IQ results, people were uptight. What are people going to think of me when the score posts? What will my score say about me? Who's going to notice? How do I deal with that outcome? Hypercompetition leads to hyperventilation about comparisons and rankings, a quick switch to me versus you. And that switch takes your eye off the task with side-by-side -side distractions. What others are doing, 
how they're doing it, guessing about what others do best that you don't or think you don't or think that they do or don't, who's noticing, and what they're thinking of you. Every competitive belief and behavior bleeds into the way we work. If you've been on a team of competitors, you're never at ease because you're competing and trying to work together, which is not easy. Okay, that was the end of that chapter, and I want to add just a little bit more from the next chapter, which is mentality two, which is clicking. And this epigraph is, who's your in crowd? Clicking is the hardest mentality to detect because life is good. People like clicking. Leaders see positive signs, engagement scores are decent, and employee happiness scores are delightful. Everyone's heard of oxytocin, the wonder hormone, tied to empathy, reciprocity, trust, sex, infant bonding with mothers, and relationship building. And clickers are high as a kite with it. When you see someone as part of your us, the us oxytocin kicks in, creating a better chance at harmony and joy among us. Clickers click. So what's the glitch? Clicking is a we counterfeit. It feels like we, among us, your team, but creates a divide between us and them that no one sees. Outside the circle of us, the fake version of we shows up biologically and behaviorally. One side effect of clicking on oxytocin is that it only works for you when people are on your side, and who you view as on your side is where we're headed. If you don't see someone as part of your us, your team, company, point of view, project, political party, oxytocin is lousy. It makes you more envious, less cooperative, and far less nice to people when they aren't your in-crowd. Oxytocin is a clicker drug, not a connector drug, unless and until you create a larger circle of we at your core. Clicks also form inside teams, and that's the similarity to competitors. Competition is still the mental operating system, just reconfigured from you versus me to us versus them. Clicking is comfortable, contagious, addicting, intellectually numbing, and emotionally stressing. And clickers trick themselves into thinking that us is we.